Section four of Charles the Second by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter one Prince of Wales. Part four. There is little doubt that Charles now became the rake in heart and in practice which he remained through life. To one control, however, he had to submit. The queen, like the mother of Falkland, was of a most masculine understanding, allayed by the passion and infirmities of her sex, and of the masterfulness which had subdued her husband. She gave her son an ample experience. With his vices, indeed, she did not interfere, but in all other matters she kept a tight hand upon his behavior. He dared not come into her presence uncovered, he was allowed no share in business except the signing of documents which he did not read. No information on public matters was given him. On the ground that it was not fitting that the heir to England should be a pensioner upon the King of France, his mother kept to herself the addition to her pension which was made by the court for his support, and for his scanty pocket-money he was dependent upon her, or more galling still, upon Lord German. So far as she was able, she kept him from English influences, and he must often have sighed for the time when he was at Jersey like a schoolboy, no distance kept, but all suffered to be as familiar with him as if they were his fellows. But now the English were kept at a great distance, while the French were as familiar with him as could be imagined. In all respects but one, but that the one nearest to her heart, she had her will. His father's commands that she should not interfere with his religion were so precise and unwavering that she dared not disobey, and he never appeared at that time to give Dr. Stewart or good Dr. Earls any anxiety. Indeed, he aroused much searching of heart by his frequent attendance at Charenton, the headquarters of French Protestantism, of Presbyterianism, that is, of the sternest type, and Hyde, at a distance, hating Presbyterianism even more than he hated France, was obliged to quiet his own mind and other people's minds, by the diplomatic reflection that his going to Charenton is no more countenancing Presbyterianism against Episcopacy than the sending an ambassador into Holland is countenancing a republic against monarchy. But what had the black baby become by this time? Fortunately, we have the testimony of two women. His mother's old friend and governess, Madame de Motteville, describes him as very well made, his swarthy complexion agreed well with his large bright eyes, his mouth was exceedingly ugly, his figure extremely fine. He was very tall for his age. He had probably now reached his full stature of over two yards high, and carried himself with grace and dignity the effect of his birthright and of Newcastle's training. His natural tendency to wit and repartee, of which he gave the first note in his child's letter to Newcastle, was not noticed, for at that time he hesitated and even stammered, a defect observed in his father and still more in his uncle, Louis the Thirteenth, And Mademoiselle de Montpensier describes him as tall for his age, with a beautiful head, black hair, a swarthy complexion, and a tolerable figure. 
this very lively young lady had ample opportunity for noting charles's personal qualities cousin to louis the fourteenth and through her mother the richest heiress in europe the grand mademoiselle had been selected by henrietta maria even two years ago when the successive proposals for the daughters of the king of portugal and prince of orange fell to the ground as a fitting match for her son she was clever and conscious of her cleverness beautiful and vain of her beauty which as she stands before her mirror she lovingly and minutely describes fond of her independence of her command of wealth and of the power which wealth brings clear-sighted and shrewd of tongue and it is to her own facile and spirited pen that we owe the account of the strange courtship of which at his mother's bidding charles now performed the outward and visible signs two great obstacles were in the way the lady herself had higher views than to be the consort of an exiled and penniless youth she was as ambitious as she was rich and capable and she had made up her mind to be the second wife of the emperor upon the expected death of his first in the next place charles could not speak french no french had been allowed at his father's court and even his mother had partly forgotten her own tongue before she returned to paris and he was forced to carry on his courtship in dumb show or through rupert's interpretership and this she declared to be unsatisfactory charles seems to have performed his part with as much conscientiousness as he ever gave to an uncongenial task in legitimate love-making indeed he was as little at home as young marlow when she stoops to conquer but he wore mademoiselle's colours he sighed like furnace he made sheep's eyes at her in default of speech he held the light while his mother dressed her hair and performed even more intimate mysteries of the toilet he attended her at every festivity ready hat in hand to lead her to her coach and having anticipated her arrival ready again to hand her out if only he could have spoken for himself she intimates she might have yielded but neither the lad of seventeen nor the mature coquette of nineteen had the least heart in the business while the anxious and tactless henrietta by her incessant talk about his love his virtues and his agonies of apprehension lest the empress should die made her object so apparent to the sharp-witted girl that although she appears to have given some sort of provisional assent it was clearly with the object of escaping from further insistence even henrietta's simple device of attempting to arouse her jealousy by drawing charles into a flirtation with one of her maids of honour was not effective mademoiselle was indeed a good deal piqued but that was all as for charles flirtation was a policy which he was quite willing to carry out but he insisted on his own choice and declared himself the servant of the beautiful mademoiselle de chatillon as a matter of fact the marriage never came within the region of practical considerations neither mademoiselle's father gaston d'orleans nor far more important mazarin had any intention of allowing her vast wealth to leave france henrietta was allowed to go on with her schemes since at any moment it would be easy to stop the farce 
No one, we may be sure, was more happy than Charles himself when this extraordinary courtship was interrupted by matters of more immediate moment. Something else, indeed, was needed, if the clouds were to be dissipated which hung so thickly above the royal fortunes. Friends must be found, armies must be raised, battles must be fought. Neither France nor Spain, engaged as they were in an exhausting struggle, would risk the active enmity of the English Parliament, although neither would at present ally herself with an anti-monarchical government. The French court, moreover, with the difficulties of the Fronde opening fast, confronted by a turbulent nobility against which all the resource of Anne of Austria and Mazarin was needed, if they were to hold their own, with the finances at the lowest ebb, was bent on avoiding all external complication. To use the presence of Charles to his advantage in dealing with England was Mazarin's sole aim. If the Parliament grew weak, a show of active assistance to the prince might obtain advantageous terms. As, however, they were strong, he could be used equally as a means of conciliating their favour. Thus, in May 1647, an edict was issued forbidding ships with commissions from Charles I or the prince to sail from French ports, and denouncing their commanders as pirates and robbers, and the prince himself was made to understand that, as Hyde had foreseen, he was practically a court prisoner of France. So resolved was Mazarin to keep him in his power, that he refused to grant his wish to join the French forces in Flanders on the pretext that it was beneath the dignity of the heir apparent of England to serve in a foreign army. From his brother-in-law, the Prince of Orange, and his sister Mary, he was indeed secure of hospitality and sympathy. But they were prevented from promising more, for to the merchant oligarchy, which was stronger than themselves, Commerce was the overwhelming interest, and the parliamentary fleets swept the sea. It soon became clear that Presbyterian Scotland and Catholic Ireland remained the only possible sources from which help might come for the restoration of a monarchy to which Presbyterianism and Catholicism were alike abhorrent, and that from neither was help to be expected without unpalatable conditions. Scotland was sharply divided. There was the party led by Argyle, to whom the covenant was the gospel traced by the glowing fingers of Jehovah himself, who hated the English independence, and who was bitterly disappointed at the failure to impose Presbyterianism upon England. The party ready to fight for the king, if by so doing, they could secure the covenant but which protested against war without that condition. And there was the party of Hamilton, Lauderdale, and the other engagers, who nominally adherents of the covenant, and forced to speak its language if they would continue in public life, hoped to use the power it implied to restore the king. In the summer of 1647, the Earl of Dunfermline was sent to France by the Presbyterians of London and the Scottish commissioners, who were still there, to urge the dispatch of Charles to Scotland, that he might head an army of invasion which would be seconded by a rising in England itself. But Hyde, who was consulted by Henrietta, although still in Jersey, 
had no desire for a restoration which should place the crown under the heel of the kirk and he insisted that no step should be taken until the scots had declared their intentions and conditions plainly and finally argyle's reply was a protest against war until the king should accept the covenant but national opinion in scotland as distinguished from that of the rigid covenanters was keen for war and hamilton to whom the parliamentary majority representing this feeling had passed at the beginning of sixteen forty eight although the assembly of the kirk in union with argyle was absolutely opposed to the engagers was resolved upon immediate action while by january twenty fourth sixteen forty eight the preliminaries of an english rising had been arranged the queen pawned her jewels to raise funds and it was decided that charles should go to calais to be ready for emergencies mazarin however forbade a further journey into holland commissions were issued in the prince's name to langdale and lord byron to command in the north and northwest of england respectively he himself was longing for employment and the engagers were anxious to secure the prestige of his presence but the disinclination to send him to scotland was as strong as ever you shall have him hamilton was told when they know not where else to send him that moment came very soon the objections to the alternative plan of ireland were found to be insuperable the queen became an advocate for the journey hyde was overruled and mazarin gave way on march ninth after a heated debate in the council the prince's resolution was taken without more ceremony to come into scotland on the twenty-third his offer was carried to edinburgh and on may first hamilton lauderdale and three other lords formally invited him to place himself at their head on may thirtieth charles was inexpressibly desirous of himself and impatient to be amongst you but it was not until the middle of july after hamilton had marched on the ill-fated expedition which ended at preston that his messenger returned with charles's acceptance of the invitation coupled however with the demand that he should be allowed to use the english prayer-book in his public devotions and with other stipulations which cut athwart covenanting feeling meanwhile sure of a welcome from his sister and the prince of orange charles had been bent upon going to holland and he was upheld in his desire by his most disinterested advisers they all felt with nicholas that nothing will do your friends so much good as to see your highness on the wing ready for their assistance while hyde in direct opposition to the german faction was overjoyed at the prospect of his removal from france no greater testimony of hyde's reputation for judgment and integrity could have been given than the urgent and reiterated summons from the queen to come now to st germain although he had consistently opposed her in all that concerned charles's relations with france he obeyed without delay only to find that charles was already gone to holland mazarin reluctant as he was to lose his hold upon the prince was not sorry now to be rid of one of the many embarrassments which pressed upon him the fronde had begun in earnest the provinces were stirring in revolt the spanish forces were fast gaining ground accordingly the formal consent of france was at length given unaccompanied however by any money 
and it was some weeks before german could raise the small sum necessary on june twenty fifth with rupert culpepper and hopton charles left st germain he had intended to join hamilton as soon as that leader had crossed the border but tidings that part of the fleet had revolted from the parliament and was lying off the dutch coast that royalist risings had taken place in various parts of england that deal sundown and walmer had been captured and that dover was besieged took him at once to holland on july ninth he arrived at helfuchlaus where the revolting ships were at anchor the crews were in a state of the wildest undiscipline his younger brother james just escaped from england was playing at being admiral while a certain colonel bamfield who had assisted him in his flight was intriguing with the sailors to declare the duke their commander and to sail without waiting for charles the prince's first care was to impose discipline and following his mother's instructions to secure the presbyterian element in the fleet by making lord willoughby of parham vice-admiral but he was in poor case for an expedition of any moment from the commercial oligarchy in holland he could get no help for their interest was peace and the prince of orange was able to give him only a small stock of provisions and beer anxious to keep the wild crews together he nevertheless put to sea on july seventeenth having first set james on shore as a check to his presumption whereat the young duke was much troubled and grown melancholy upon it thus to be used as a prisoner and not trusted with himself we can imagine charles's delight when he felt the deck under his feet and watched the receding shores of holland it was not so much that he was once more on salt water nor that action was before him worthy of a disinherited prince for the first time he was his own master free of hyde and german and mademoiselle de montpensier free of the council and of the factions in his family free above all of his mother's imperious control on july twenty fourth the fleet was off yarmouth hoping by a timely landing to save colchester from fairfax but the town was staunch to the parliament and the fortress was left to its fate while charles sailed to the downs to obtain funds he seized all merchant vessels making for the thames offering to liberate them on payment of twenty thousand pounds by the common council he established a strict blockade at the mouth of the river where warwick was lying with the rest of the parliamentary fleet and he wrote to the house of lords urging them to a treaty with his father he was now joined by captain batten who brought with him the constant warwick one of the best ships in the parliamentary service he thus had a fleet of eleven ships carrying two hundred and seventy-four guns End of section four